Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good health insurance doesn't have to be expensive. At Ambetter from Superior Health Plan, our plans are better for your budget. We provide complete care at a much lower cost. And you may qualify for financial assistance to help pay for your coverage. Sign up for the most affordable care today. Call 1-844-TX-BETTER. That's 1-844-TX-B-E-T-T-E-R. Ambetter from Superior Health Plan is insured by Celtic Insurance Company. This is a solicitation for insurance. Welcome to the Texas Conflict Coach radio program. If you have ever experienced or engaged in destructive or unresolved conflict, then you know it leads to broken relationships, distrust, and damaging results. Our program will help you manage and resolve conflict effectively with strategies, valuable resources, and support. I am your host, Patty Porter. My guest hosts, Dina Zametta and Stephen Kotev, along with our guest experts, We'll share our experiences, raise your awareness, and give you food for thought. We will share with you problem-solving strategies, no matter what your situation is. At work, with neighbors or friends, family, or partners, tune in or join in the conversation every Tuesday evening. I have a very special guest. Eveline Lidner, who will have a courageous and profound conversation with me about dignity, humiliation, and conflict. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. This is the first statement of Article I of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Since this declaration's adoption in 1948, political rights have been foregrounded. Now the time has come for humankind to give dignity sustainable attention. Human rights are embedded in dignity, but dignity has a larger humanizing scope than rights. Dignity entails justice and peace, and it manifests as unity and diversity and supports an ethics of care. Now, Evelyn Lindner is the founding president of the Human Dignity and Humiliation Studies Network, and she identifies herself as a global citizen, and very importantly, a part of the human family. Her personal life is designed to live as a change agent, fostering creativity and paradigm shifts throughout our diverse planet. She travels the world, not as a tourist or business traveler, but as a global citizen, helping to build a future for a world culture of true humanity and equality and dignity. Eveline is multifaceted and highly educated, and my introduction of her only scratches the surface. Please learn more about her work across the globe and her diverse experiences at www.humiliationstudies.org. 
Eveline, thank you for engaging and connecting with me today to delve into an area of all of us, our own human family, what we really need to understand and to do something about to create a globally sustainable world culture. So thank you for joining me. It is me who has to thank you, dear Patty. It's such an honor to be with you today. Well, I really want people to hear your message and hear about the incredible, profound work that you're doing. Let's get started with your self-defined identity as a global citizen. What does it mean to you when you say global citizen then? I would say there are two definitions of global citizenship that are quite irreconcilable. Uh, one is the global citizen who is the business person who dashes from one international hotel to the other international hotel. And I would say I'm not that kind of in global citizen. I'm a global citizen who uh, foregrounds that I'm a member of the human family, the entire human family. And as soon as you think about family, you uh, think of sharing, of meeting, of speaking, of listening, uh, of holding hands. Or, you know, there is a, a very different kind of script that you use as soon as you think of a family as compared when you think of, um, of a free market, for example, or competition or profit. So there is the global citizen who foregrounds like you know competition, international competition and profit, and then there is the other global citizen who foregrounds the family, and I am the latter. And as soon as you start thinking that we are one family on a tiny planet, and that we that we have to learn how to live on this planet in a way that we don't uh, hollow out our resource base. You know, at the moment, we need. Uh, if, if everybody wanted to live like uh, the West, we would need many planets to make it sustainable. So it's unsustainable what we do now. So how do we get out of that trap as a human family? And how do we treat each other in a mutually uh, respectful way? So as soon as we start thinking in these lines, then we have many questions and new questions that follow. So how can that be done? And how can one person, like I'm one individual, how can one individual kind of help and contribute to that? And this is why I design my life as a global citizen, as a member of our human family. I try to do what a family member should do, namely, for example, simply to listen to the other family members, to really meet them, to really get to know to know them. And for that, I do not dash from international hotel to international hotel. I live in families globally. I have lived now for the past 40 years, almost 38 years, globally, and I have almost never lived in hotels, but I live in families. I'm part of many families in many cultures. So I have a kind of, I'm not monocultural, I'm not bicultural, I'm not multicultural. I'm in my entire, in my body, I'm, I'm global, I'm, I'm part of the entire human family. And this is not a theoretical kind of insight, but it's a profoundly lived experience. 
and and I, I've read some. Uh, well, you've written so much. I mean, not only books, but about your experiences on the humiliationstudies.org and your photographs as well. And so I'm glad that you said that it's not theoretical. This is how you live your life and have so, uh, like you said, for almost 40 years. So as you've done that, you have come to uh, create or found this Human Dignity and Humiliation Studies Network. And often we, uh, I've heard it referenced as the Human DHS, but that's what it stands for, the Human Dignity Humiliation Studies Network. What is this network that you have founded, and what is its significance to the work you do? It is the attempt to build an alternative global community of people who respect each other in uh, equality and dignity, who hold hands, who do what I just described, who do what you do in a family. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the type of seed for such a global community, an alternative global community. It's not the um, traditional uh, organization or institution or, or foundation or NGO. It's more, we, we design it more as a movement. Uh, and it's not an empire building. Uh, we are not regarding ourselves as exclusively doing something. But we want to hold hands and link up with everybody else on this planet who does similar things. So it's more the, the, the concept of a movement. And we uh, often uh, use the, now since the Arab Spring happened, we use this as a metaphor sometimes. Uh, we say, okay, uh, what would you think if you are an Egyptian and you wanted everybody to come to Cairo to the Tahrir Square, it's the Liberation Square, and I worked and lived in Egypt for seven years, and, and I walked past, across this square every day, and for seven years. So uh, I know it very well. So I, I love using this metaphor. Therefore, also, so imagine you are an Egyptian revolutionary, and you want the Egyptian population to come to stand up to do something new, to come to this Tahrir Square. What would you? not do. You would not sit down, make a business plan, then enter into the fundraising phase, then after having raised some funds, then you would employ some revolutionaries, and then these revolutionaries would perform a revolution for all those who pay membership fee, and then when the funds are finished, the revolution would be finished. So this is kind of a little bit of a caricature of the so-called traditional uh, way of proceeding in an, in an organization. And uh, as, you, uh, as you see from this caricature, we do not want to go down this path. We want to go down the path of the movement where everybody who feels called comes and brings what he or she can bring to the table. Like in Egypt, people would take vacation, they would pay the, the ticket of the train to come to, to Cairo. Everybody would give what he or she could give. Some people can give more, some people cannot give only their the spirit and their support. So this is a, a different kind of approach. It's, again, the family approach. 
It's where everybody gives according to ability and everybody receives according to need. This is the family approach. Sometimes we uh, use another metaphor, namely the metaphor of the tree that grows. So our um, network is, uh, there is the trunk, there are the roots, and then there are the branches. And we are about four people, we have a kind of core team, four people. I, I'm the first one to start with this network. The idea emerged in the year 2001, and then came Linda Hartling, our director, in 2003, and then came Michael Britton uh, in 2007, and then two, three years ago came Uli Spaltov. So we are kind of four people in in the core of our our movement, and we are watering and nurturing the roots on the trunk of the tree, which is our websites. We have also uh, launched the World Dignity University Initiative, and Uli is the webmaster of that website. I'm the webmaster of the Human Dignity and Humiliation Studies Network website, and we have two conferences per year. So we are, this is the watering of the of the trunk and the roots, and then about 250 emails per day uh, that are the nurturing emails of our relationships in our network. And then uh, we invite everybody to build their own branch on this trunk of the tree. So in that way, we manifest what we think um, is very, very um, the essence of dignity, namely unity in diversity. We do not simply speak about it, dignity and unity in diversity, we manifest it in our own way of proceeding. And and living. I mean, and so so this network, uh, since we're, we're on this part of the conversation, how many people are, I know that you invite people, how many people are part of the network now outside of the four core team members? About 1,000. Okay. We have almost 300 people in our global advisory board. These are top thinkers in academia and practice uh, who are really at the forefront of uh, what is needed to build a sustainable world in the future, both ecologically and socially. Uh, so just looking at our global advisory board will uh, will give you an insight. We are, as you see there, uh, I... I invite everybody whom I feel I could give a PhD in dignity. Independent of any other titles, we are not kind of looking at the traditional titles of PhD, professor, whatever. We look at another kind of excellence, namely the excellence of walking one's talk of dignity. So why don't we just... You know, we we often assume that people know what dignity is. So how would you define dignity? It is a very um, difficult term and phenomenon to uh, explain. Um, When we were uh, talking in our uh, preparatory conversations about our interview today, uh, I was asking you, uh, how would you feel if I put the following question in front of you? Is it better to treat your slaves kindly or should one not treat one's slaves kindly? 
what would you feel? You would feel, wow, you know, this is the wrong choice. It's the wrong question. There should not be slavery. Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh. This is where you feel the a kind of gut feeling of dignity. You see that? When you have this reaction that you say, but wait a minute, there shouldn't be slavery in the first place. This is kind of your own moral intuition tells you this is not dignified. You know, this is wrong choice. Dignity is being missed in this question. So here you see that that there is a kind of uh, historical movement of our moral feelings and that we are on a journey as a human family from moral feelings that were completely different to what we are feeling today. And dignity is, you could say, kind of the core of this journey. Um, there are many approaches to the word um, phenomenon of dignity. It started as a decorum. It meant that one person, a man normally who had decorum, was standing higher than others, was a dignitarian. So dignity put some one person higher than another. Today we would say, no, equality in dignity is the essence of dignity. It's this sentence that you quoted, every human being is born free and equal in dignity and rights. So today, equality in dignity is at the core of what you and me feel when we talk about dignity. It is no longer what people would feel at the time when the question about slavery was felt to be appropriate. They would feel, no, there are some people who are born higher and some people are simply born as lesser beings. And they would find nothing obscene or offensive in that. So um, there is a historical change of our moral feelings and dignity is at the core of it. And interestingly, there is a linguistic, historical linguistic marker for that. In, this, in the year 1757, for the first time in the English language, in the encyclopedia, the meaning of the verb to humiliate meant to violate somebody's dignity. Before that, to humiliate was not offensive, not a violation. It was pro-social together with humbling to show a lowly person her due lowly place. This was seen as pro-social. Like you had um, words like mm, domestic chastisement. It was the duty of the pater familias, the father of the house, to beat his disobedient wife and children. His duty. Today, we would call this domestic violence. So we see that we, we see this journey on which we are, of which the term, the phenomenon of dignity is at, at the core. We see it everywhere. We see it in linguistic changes from uh, domestic chastisement, where it's a duty, and to domestic violence, where it's a violation to beat your family. And we see it in words like, um, today, perhaps 
female genital cutting. It was once a cultural tradition. Today we would say it's a violation, cultural violation. And many, many, many bullying, for example, or hazing, or all these topics, trauma treatment, uh, you know, like uh, 100 years ago, it's not so long ago, um, the, the correct pedagogy was to break the will of your child. And this was, you know, to, to, to treat your child kindly would be to spoil it. So you see, everything that we are part of is in, on, in flux. And moral feelings are in flux. And the, the, the phenomenon or the, the, the sense of dignity is at the core of it. I love the way that you explain that because it makes it very easy to understand for those who are uh, listening to this podcast. And one of the things that we talked about in our planning is, you know, when, we, when you speak about dignity and humiliation, you know, there are obvious signs of how it causes conflict. But let's go into that. And part of that is not just the cultural... Uh, things in the past is some of the behavioral uh, cultural expectations you just described, but even our words. So let's go into that. Say more about how this ties into conflict in the words that we use. You did such a great research uh, with your family and uh, you found words that we would no longer use. Uh, what were, were the words you found? Uh, well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, very recently, I was uh, uh, with some friends, uh, older friends, and uh, they were explaining uh, and sharing their experience off of a cruise ship. And the first thing that they noticed was that there were a lot of Orientals on this cruise ship. And my first gut reaction when I heard that is, that's a very offensive term, and yet they used it oblivious to the idea that it's offensive and so that was one word that I have not heard used in many years and yet here it was just last week and I thought that was certainly an offensive word I know another word that in, in this part of the world um, and, and maybe other parts of the world but certainly in this part of the world and something that even a family member uh, referenced to would be half-breed uh, someone who is uh, for example, in this part of the world that I live in, would be um, a child who is born to a Mexican national and, let's say, a Caucasian. And so they would use it in reference to that child as being a half-breed, which is very offensive as well. Uh, those were just a couple of examples, and there's many of them out there. Yes, these are wonderful examples, aren't they? So um, they make us aware that we are on a time travel isn't that interesting? And that we uh, are well advised to be humble and not self-righteous, uh, also with respect to others. You know, who knows? In 100 years, people might look back on us and say, oh, these people were living in dark ages. Imagine they were still eating animals. <coughs> these barbarians. Mm. Uh, so and and we <clears throat> today we 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 think we are <clears throat> much better than those who <clears throat> who who think, thought that slavery was kind of nature's order or divinely ordained. So we feel so much better. <clears throat> but I think we 
are well advised to be humble and to be aware that we are on a journey <clears throat> and that we it, it it would be good if we were to reflect on which journey we are and on which journey we want to be. And then if we have kind of found out what journey we want to be on, then to nurture this journey. And <clears throat> in my case, I was born into a displaced family, so I was born into a kind of distance, which then also uh, led to my global life. So I was born into this distance of the traveler from afar who comes to a place and is simply just in awe at what these people think is normality. So in my case, it was a background of displacement that brought this distance into my life. However, I think that it's very useful in times of crisis to have this distance. So I would invite, like to invite everybody to somehow create this distance a little bit artificially uh, because it's in times of crisis it's important to take a step back and to see, okay, on which journey are we, on which journey do we want to be, and how do we nurture the journey we want to be on. So, um, and when I step back, and uh, I remember when we had, had our first preparatory meeting, I was a little bit torn because, uh, you know, how can I tell you that some of the words that are normal also in, in, you know, in our time, how can I tell you that these words are as offensive as words as slavery to me? Uh, how can I tell you that without humiliating you, without insulting you? This is a problem of, of my position as a kind of onlooker from a distance but of course I don't want to humiliate you. When you heard your family talk, your uh, you know, little bit older uh, family members talk about Orientals, you know, you didn't want to tell them, oh, stupid you, you know, uh, you are living in the wrong time, Have, haven't you thought a little bit? <laughs> uh, uh, you, uh, you don't want to humiliate them, you know. So I don't want to humiliate anybody around me. However, I would like to draw the attention of all of us to the fact that we are on a journey and that we it is it would pay if we looked at what we do now and whether it serves the journey we want to be on and uh, i remember we would discuss that for example the word consumer yes. or you know or the word show that you have a show or uh, to market your show and uh, I explained to you very lovingly and kindly that to me these words are um, words that are catering to a script of market pricing. Anthropologist uh, Alan Page Fiske would call this script market pricing. And I would like to foreground, as I said earlier, the script of family. And in a script of family, uh, you you know, when you have a baby, the baby is not a consumer, uh, and a baby should you know not die if the baby cannot uh, make a living, and uh, uh, you don't put on a show for the baby uh, or for your grandmother, and uh, you don't market your services to your baby and your grandmother. Um, so as soon as you start thinking in terms of the family, then you see that the terminology of the market pricing script 
is easily offensive. And uh, so if we want our journey to go more into the direction that we are one family on one tiny home planet and we want to foreground what you do when you are a family, then we have to be very careful with any linguistic um, trend that foregrounds market pricing because market pricing is an impoverished script. It's a, a script that is much, much poorer much more reduced than the family script. So uh, this, um, you know, how do I explain that in a in a way that you do not feel humiliated? Do you feel feel humiliated by me now? No, not at all. You know, when we first had the conversation about some of the language I use when I uh, produce these uh, podcasts. It's funny because now I find myself being very, very careful about using the words uh, show or consumer. And I and believe me, I have thought about it significantly <laughs> since our conversation. And it, it did take me aback at first, but at, at the same time, I was just like, I was so totally unaware of those words being offensive that the question that came to mind in our conversation was, in today's world, we're using words. That And we'll go back to um, Mr. Fisk, the anthropologist. He actually had some other things that we're going to reference. But um, how do we become aware, especially in today? Now, we can certainly look in the past and say, look at all the words that we used in the past and still show up today in our future or in our present uh, that we're, we now see as offensive. And one of them I was talking to you about was uh, way back in the 40s and 50s, the word pregnant was uh, considered, you know, a no-no. You couldn't, you you could not refer to a woman who is visibly pregnant. You cannot use that word pregnant, whether it was on public television or radio or in the workplace, because that was considered, I don't know, offensive or it was considered, you know, you know, naughty or what. I don't know what or why, but they would use the word anticipating, which I had never heard of that word, <laughs> and I was just like, anticipating. What do you mean? Just say what it is right now. So today we're using words that I would I would have no idea would have been offensive, like consumer and show. How do we know what those words are today? I mean, we've got someone like you as, as a global citizen who educates us, but how, how do we become educated? So when I heard last week my my older friends who use the word oriental we were in a, in a van of six people, and I wanted to shout out, you can't use the word oriental. <laughs> That's offensive. But I thought, well, that would be very embarrassing if I shouted it out like that because that was my gut reaction. So I stayed silent because I didn't want to humiliate or embarrass him, and yet I felt compelled to say something, and I haven't said anything. So how do we have that conversation? How do we raise that level of awareness? I think the most important thing is to do it in a dignified way. If we want to think that our journey should go towards more dignity, then the most important thing is to do it in a dignified way, to avoid humiliating anybody. I think this is this is the the, the essence of walking one's talk, uh, and this is uh, an essential part uh, of this path, this journey, and I see that many people um, around the world have uh, difficulties in seeing that. 
because as you say, the first reaction is, oh no, you know, and to be against it. However, being against something uh, at least somehow um, brings to the fore a, a script that is dis detrimental to a dignified path. It brings to the fore combat, for example. And um, let me share with you one uh, story that I uh, do use in order to show the different universes of the term humiliation and honor and dignity. Uh, I have, as I told you before, uh, worked in Egypt and in other parts of the world where the, um, and it's used not just in the Arab world, in many parts of the world, this tradition of honor killing. I'm not sure whether everybody knows what that means. It means that if uh, one member of your family and normally it's a girl who loses their um, chastity, uh, then uh, this is regarded as a humiliation of the family honor and has to be remedied in some way. Uh, now imagine, you know, imagine you are a psychologist like I was in Egypt, and you have a mother in front of you who says, Look, our daughter has been raped. We have tried everything to cover it up because now our family honor is being humiliated. We have tried to cover it up to marry her off to the rapist because this is one way to make it legal that he somehow violated her. And uh, the, if nothing helps, then the last resort might have to be, from her point of view, to kill the daughter. And she stands in front of you and cries and says, okay, I love my daughter, but I know it is my duty. The, it is like surgery. When the body is sick and one limb is, the body has a limb that is sick and you can only rescue the body by amputating the sick limb, then you have to do this operation. If you love the body, you cannot simply leave the sick limb on. So she feels it's her duty, if she loves her family, to ask the brother of the girl or her brother to kill the girl. What would you think? You would think in your, and what I thought, it's, it's humiliating to me to simply listen to that. The girl needs trauma treatment. How come that humiliation can be healed by killing? It, it's compounding humiliation. It's terrible. The girl needs trauma treatment. So, this is a completely different universe of humiliation and dignity. The, 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 the girl has her dignity being violated, you know? And what is this talk about honor humiliation? So, there you have, we have two completely irreconcilable universes of honor, humiliation, and dignity, and then we have a meta-discourse, you know, like, if I were to say to the mother, look, you are completely out of your mind, <laughs> what are you telling me there? she would say, oh, you are an arrogant Western person who humiliates my mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. so I feel humiliated by what she says. She feels humiliated by what I say. And we have two completely irreconcilable, you know, in one universe, the girl must die. In the other uni moral universe, the girl must live. Yes. And this is the journey on which we are. This is the journey. It's the journey from one... Uh, 
completely, you know, universe that to you and me is offensive to another that to you and me is the right one. And uh, I have thought for many years, you know, why is the, the, the place where you and me stand the right one? You know, it's a long discussion why I believe that this is the, the one we have to go to. And, you know, now imagine if I said to the, to the woman, uh, to the mother, you stupid mother, you, you, you must be crazy. You know, I would not invite her in a constructive way to join me on this journey to a different definition of humiliation, honor, and dignity. Oh, she would become my enemy. I would do a disservice to this journey. So what do I have to do? I have to invite her lovingly. I have to explain her why I think that the, the, the script I would uh, use, namely to give trauma treatment to the girl, why this script is a better one, a one I would like her to join us in. I would have to explain that to her in a loving way. Otherwise, I do a disservice to everybody. So, um, so what would I explain to her? I would explain to her, and here I uh, would uh, again uh, invite her and everybody into taking a step back. Because if you want to really understand historical journeys, historical transitions, one has to take a step back. And I would invite her, together with me, to take a step back and to try to understand where does this come from, that the girl must die? Why? And how come that I believe the girl must not die? Why? And there we come to really understanding the journey of the human family on our planet in its entirety. We are on this planet since about, with our modern bodies and psyches, since about 200,000 years. And for the first 95% of our history on this planet, we were populating our planet, starting from Africa. We always had the next valley where we could go, you know, if one group became bigger and there was some conflict, they would split and one uh, family would move to the next valley, which was abundant in wild food where you could gather and hunt. This is, of course, very, very simplified uh, said. Of course, there was conflict. It was not an ideal term, uh, time, but... Uh, there were dangers and conflicts, but there was the fact that everybody could believe uh, that there was always a next valley that one could move to. Until, of course, some moment, some day, the fact that our planet is finite in size must, you know, was bound to stop that. And when did that happen? About 10,000 years ago, it started to happen, and this is the last 5% of our history. Suddenly, not, yeah, quite suddenly, historically seen quite suddenly, it began that the next valley was already taken by the people. This then triggered what we call the Neolithic Revolution. We, as a human family, adapted by developing what is called complex agriculture. At that point, a completely new condition 
or frame for our human condition on our planet emerged. Namely, when you plant in spring and you want to harvest in fall, you have to guard everything. You have to start to be afraid of your neighbor taking what you have planted. And this is what indeed happened. The Chinese wall. Why was the Chinese wall built? Because the nomadic Mongols would come in autumn and simply plunder what the Chinese farmers had planted. And this was, you know, ubiquitous. Suddenly, everybody was living in fear of neighbors. Some neighbors were called, neighbor communities were called friends or allies, but suddenly they could mutate into enemies and conquer, become conquerors. This is called, in political science, the security dilemma. What happened is that I then got some weapons, you know, like I'm the overlord of my community, I get some weapons to defend myself, and my, the neighboring community uh, gets afraid, gets more weapons, I get more afraid, so it's an arms race that then develops, and war is almost inevitable in that situation. And another uh, effect was that strongman um, communities developed uh, what Rihanna Eisler calls dominator, the dominator model of society. A strongman at the top uh, who kept his followers in line, in uniformity, and uh, the young men were sent out to the borders to die in battle. The women were kept inside. So there we have the kind of frame within which the girl must die, you could say. In, in this frame... And that, and that was a big step back. Yeah, you could say so. And uh, we see, like, uh, we see that it was a step back when we, for example, look at the young men who were trained to go to the borders and die young in battle. They, you know, they were sent there because they were more dispensable, expandable than young women. Uh, a community would die out if you sent all the young women to the border to die young. So how would you do make young men want to die early? Okay, you tell them, don't be afraid. It's an honor to die for your country. Be brave. Don't feel anything. Don't feel fear. Suppress all your feelings. Uh, and here you have some drugs, you know, we see it, you know, how, how people, how young men need to be drugged in order to get into a warrior frenzy. You have a tradition of drugs there. And after the war, you have the veterans who are profoundly traumatized. So there we see that it's not natural for human beings to kill other human beings. It's not natural. We have to kind of mutilate the soul of young men if we want to bring them there. So in the past 10,000 years, we have lived in a culture by necessity because it was really the fact that we were conquered all the time. And just imagine uh, the, uh, South America, the Incas, you know, how they were conquered. You know, it was a fact. And in that context, a very malign, I call it honor culture, uh, was ubiquitous. Almost every culture, every community of this planet was affected by that. 
And how wonderful, what a window of opportunity we have today. We can exit from that past. We can. Why? Why? Because we now know that we are on one planet and that we are one family. We have, for example, something that our forefathers didn't have. We have the image of our blue planet from the astronaut's perspective. We understand that we are one, on one planet that is finite. We know that we are one family. We have the knowledge of even mm, arranging our affairs on this planet in a sustainable way. The knowledge is there. What is still lacking is our awareness that they, we have this window of opportunity. We are still caught in the honor culture of the past. And some people... Of course, they are slow in adapting to this and seeing the window of opportunity. If we just think back to the uh, 2003 Iraq war, it was as if this was an attempt to keep the security dilemma alive in a time where it was no longer necessary. The Cold War has ended, had ended. It was the last historically last large-scale manifestation of the security dilemma, two empires in, you know, pitted against each other. And then this cultural script was basically redundant and it was kept alive, the honor culture was kept alive artificially for a while. And we, as a human family on this planet, now have the window of opportunity to become aware that the culture of the past 5% of our human family on this planet, this was a culture that was rather malign, and that had malign effects, and we can now, you know, we can go out of it, we can exit from it, we can create a very, very new culture for the future that is very different, a culture of dignity, of unity and diversity, rather than what happened in the past where we always had the dominator model of society where we have uniformity without diversity. So it sounds like the movement that you were referring to earlier with the, the network, that is at the core of bringing this awareness. Uh, and, 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 is, you know, and so what is it that the everyday person can do to move beyond humiliation who really can support equality and dignity, how do, like you said earlier, you are one person, one global citizen, and you're creating, you're founding, you're you know, moving this movement, you're growing the movement. So what does one person like myself do to support and, and increase that awareness and have a better understanding uh, in, in everything that you've been talking about? Uh, I sometimes use the example of the broken television set. Imagine that uh, your television set is uh, broken and uh, you have no experts, electricians around. Okay, so you have two choices. Either you never watch television again or you become an expert on how to repair television. In that case, the latter case, it would require that you study that you sit down. It might take some years, but this is the only way. And this is the situation of our world today. Now, if you want to 
to repair the television set. It's not enough that you simply have some loose opinions. No, you have to really study. Today, we are in a world where we thought our politicians and economy professors were the experts. But we have to admit they are not. So now we have to sit down and we, all of us, every single global citizen has to become an expert. So it starts with admitting I only have loose opinions. And it's not good to turn loose opinions into firm beliefs and then get into unnecessary conflicts over them. By doing that, we overlook the necessary conflicts. So, the first thing is to admit, okay, as for now, I don't know enough. And it's not enough to point, to have loose opinions and to point at, at my finger at others. So, I have to sit down and study. So, what I, in my case, what I do is to live globally, because in that way I study. I study, you know, I have two PhDs, so I have studied uh, the academic way, but I, my, my entire life is a study of our life on this planet. So, but, uh, you know, if you are now in Texas listening, for example, you cannot simply change your life in that way, and it's not necessary. You could simply sit down and dedicate every Wednesday evening to study. You sit down and you, and it may take many years, so that you, and you might want to, to use one, to take one uh, field, for example, economics. I wrote a book, A Dignity Economy, that I will present uh, on the 5th of December here at, in New York at Columbia University. Economy, for example, we need many, many more people who know what is economy? How did it become the way it became today? You might want to go back to 2,000 years, to Roman law, when the notion of a contract came up uh, and of, of private uh, property. And so you need to really study and become an expert, and it might take years. And uh, so it would mean refraining from turning loose opinions into firm beliefs but to stay in humility, in the humility of, in the, of knowing that we, we have to learn more, we have to study more, and we have to avoid getting into unnecessary conflicts and to see where are the necessary conflicts that we have to take up. And, and as you know, we, we see the necessary conflicts we have to take up, how can we then deal with them in a constructive way rather than destructive way? And when you talk about a necessary conflict, give an example of what you mean by that. For example, uh, global climate change uh, would be something, or, or global economy, uh, that impacts a local, uh, the local uh, level as much as the global level. So these would be two uh, uh, areas where I feel that unnecessary conflicts uh, cloud the necessary conflicts. And here again we come back to humiliation, cycles of humiliation. They have the very unfortunate um, aspect that they cloud our minds and we therefore we have to be very careful. Uh, you know, when I mm, humiliate you, you do not want to cooperate with me. You uh, do not, you know, you might even be so uh, hurt that you cannot even think clearly anymore, that you are simply 
taken by deep uh, pain and and uh, so as soon as we get into cycles of humiliation and we we want to humiliate our humiliators then we slow down any uh, progress in in any way we we slow down so we have to be careful for example i see that the cold war is still in in our blood you know like uh we i see people uh you know with with really deep emotion of humiliation and counter humiliation speaking you know with disgust about communism or about capitalism and when i ask them uh, what is it you know in either camp of both what is communism or what is capitalism the facts are not there they are loose opinions they are strong feelings underpinned by loose opinion. So as as long as we are caught in these kinds of cycles of humiliation and counter-humiliation, we slow down uh, any uh, progress because we can't think clearly and we then also uh, trigger all kinds of biases that slow down the process even more, like the um, um, attribution error, you know, or that we devalue even the best idea that comes from the enemy camp. Uh, we we are we have to be very very careful in uh, eliciting cycles of humiliation. Okay, so I want to summarize a few things from our our conversation today uh, for those who uh, are listening. And um, and please correct me if I misunderstood any of these things. One of the things that stood out uh, for me today is is really in our journey from past to present and into the future is how we communicate with each other so that we're not using words that are offensive. It, it causes those hidden conflicts. And so what we're trying to do is raise awareness, educate, but do it in a way that is not humiliating or done in a way that's loving uh, to raise awareness about offensive words and understanding those words and having conversation with people about the words that are offensive uh, and changing that. The other thing that uh, stood out to me, uh, especially in our conversation right now, is how do we really take a step back and really understand, like you, the story that you talked about earlier with the woman around honor killing, that was a very powerful and profound story. And how do we take a step back and not humiliate her or her humiliate us because of our cultural differences, um, because we are part of one global family, but how do we study, how do we not take these loose opinions? And we do that every day. We make assumptions about things, about people, about situations, about cultures. We use those opinions as like the, the truth or it is the right thing to do. So we turn those into firmly held beliefs. And you're saying, no, let's not do that. We don't know enough. We need to study. And that was kind of your kind of call to action, if you will, is, you know, even just dedicate, you know, one evening uh, during the week where you can really study something from a big, uh, you know, big perspective, a bird's eye perspective. You know, what is our role in the world? And, and really this is about how do we envision a very globally sustainable future. And that's why you, you talked about, you know, maybe they're um, studying things around the global economy or the global climate change. In other words, things that really are necessary 
you know, conflicts that, that's having a huge impact on our Earth uh, and that affects all of us uh, in the human family. Um, the other thing is, is that how do we um, really begin to have different kinds of, the way I picked it up is how do we have different kinds of conversations, not just in our little niche area of the world. We have listeners uh, for the Texas Conflict Coach uh, from all over the world. I've heard from people from New Zealand, American Samoas, Italy, everywhere that have listened to these podcasts. And so we will definitely have a reach out there about what it is that you're trying to do with this network, with this movement, uh, and growing that. And, uh, and, and one of the things that you had said earlier, too, is that this movement, this network, is really not about finding people who are humiliated so that they can humiliate the humiliator, but people who really walk the walk, who walk the talk, uh, who believe in uh, sharing in this global world as, like you said, a different script, becoming part of that family script and not part of that market pricing script. So there's, this is just, I mean, we're barely, barely, barely scratching the surface in the work that you have done in over close to the 40 years that you've been doing this work and this passion. Uh, and, and, and so I'm hoping that people will learn more about this network, um, will be invited, uh, and you do have to be invited, so I would like you to talk a little bit about that, but they can find more information at humiliationstudies.org. You said that they have to be invited into the network. What does that exactly mean? How, do, do they reach out to you and say, this is something that I very much believe in? How does that work? Yes, uh, absolutely. As you say, they would have to reach out and uh, to yes, say, I would like to be part of this, I would like to contribute. And uh, then uh, the next step would be that we uh, nurture a relationship with you and uh, that we see where you stand. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the word humiliation does attract people who would like to humiliate the humiliator. Um, and who would like to continue cycles of humiliation. And I have done my doctoral research in Rwanda and Somalia on the background of Nazi Germany uh, on the link between humiliation and war and genocide. And I know from Rwanda there it was the script, humiliate the humiliator. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are people in this uh, world who still think that this is the way to do it. And um, we would not like to invite them into our network. And then there is the middle uh, group, uh, you could say, uh, who are giving wonderful talks uh, on human rights, who have PhDs in the right field, who are activists in the right way, who have wonderful CVs. And, and now I'm a little bit kind of, uh, making a caricature again, going home and beat their wives or treat their fellow uh, people uh, in authoritarian ways. And I, uh, I, I, of course, I cannot follow everybody into their bedrooms and see whether they beat their wives. You know, I'm joking now. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, we would like to to invite people who really are humble enough and have self-reflection enough 
to try to walk their talk. I'm not perfect. It's not a question of perfection. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And it's not, you know, perfection would be the wrong script again. You know, when you are on a journey, there is never perfection. There is flux. So um, it's not that, but it's the kind of awareness that we are on a journey and that we also ourselves are on a journey and that we attempt to walk our talk. And so as soon as I feel and we feel that a person is on this journey in this way of humility, loving humility and mutuality, then we would invite you into our network and to contribute in whatever way you wish. And then comes the, the diversity part, you know. But this is what unifies us then. This is what the unity part of unity in diversity. And then comes the diverse, diversity part. Then you would have to kind of forge, shape the way you contribute. Um, it is must come out of your passion, of your, you know, capabilities and creativity, you need to then just uh, shape your space in our movement in the way that is near to your heart, near to your passion. You know, the old way would be, like also our World Dignity University is working in that way. Uh, The old way would be, for example, in the university that you say there are these and these and these disciplines and there we need to employ Professor A, B, C, D. We will look for the best professor in the world and we do fundraising and then we employ these professors. So this we don't do. We don't mm, ask people to fill predefined spaces. Mm -hmm. We do the other way. We ask you to develop your personal um, to nurture your personal uh, creativity and passion and then to bring it into our movement. Okay, very good. Um, that, okay, so that's excellent. It's, it's a very, very different way uh, of doing, and, and I mean, I love the way that you described it as a movement. Now, you do have at the 21st uh, annual conference, the Search for Dignity in South Africa, and that's coming up next year, I believe. Yes, we have two conferences per year, uh, one always in uh, December at Columbia University in New York City. This is the, uh, the, it's called the Workshop on Transforming Humiliation and Violent Conflict. It's coming up now. It's on the 6th and 7th of December in New York City, and everybody who listens now is invited to come. I will present my book on a dignity economy the day before at Columbia University. And then we have always a second annual conference, which is outside of the U.S. And it was like last August. It was in Oslo. Last year it was in New Zealand. Before that it was in Istanbul. And next year it will be at the end of April uh, in Stellenbosch in South Africa. And please come. Okay, wonderful. And they can find that information, uh, I believe, at the humiliationstudies.org as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Evelyn, our our time is coming uh, to a close, and I wanted to leave you with the opportunity for any final message you would like to leave with listeners. I would like to uh, encourage and invite everybody to become aware that we live in historically unprecedented times. As I said, it's a window of opportunity, the end of the Cold War. We know that we live in one world. We have all the knowledge to make it sustainable, both both socially and ecologically. 
this is, you know, the generation that is alive now carries more responsibility than any other re generation alive before. And you who listen now, you are among this generation. And we do not have much time, perhaps 100 years, perhaps less, to turn it around. And uh, so please sit down. I would like to invite you, you know, sit down, get knowledgeable. It might be, as I said, one evening per, per week. It also, whenever you have vacation, try to go to a slum in Nairobi, a favela in Brazil. Try to get out of the bubble within which you live and try to enter another bubble instead of simply traveling within your bubble, like an inter international hotel in another country would mean staying within your bubble or simply spending the time on, on a beach somewhere. So the free time you have, please, I would like to invite you, invest this free time, invest your resources, invest all your, everything you have into getting uh, an expert on uh, turning the path that we as a human family are on now into a more constructive direction of a dignified future for our children. Okay, wonderful. Evelyn, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I, I just was listening so intently to everything that you had to say, and I was reading your chapter on global citizenship and pouring over your website. There is so much to... I mean, what you have to say has such deep meaning, and I thank you so much for at least introducing these ideas and this movement to our listening audience, and, and thank you again for joining us. It is me who has to thank you very, very much, because I know that you dedicate uh, your time. You're doing this um, initiative, uh, inviting people into your house into your heart uh, you do it as a gift to the human family and I would like to personally really thank you for giving our human family this gift well, you're very welcome and have a good evening you too thank you thank you for listening to the Texas Conflict Coach we hope you enjoyed the program you can find all of our podcasts archived to listen at your convenience at TexasConflictCoach.com or download the podcast at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can also become a Facebook fan of Conflict Connection or Twitter me at TXConflictCoach. Insurance-minded speeches from Geico. It's a common expression, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. However, what if the horse's mouth is filled with useful insurance tools? This is the exact case with the Geico app. Yes, the app is free and therefore a gift horse. However, look inside the app and behold, emergency roadside assistance, digital ID cards, bill pay. Get the Geico app, look it in the mouth, get amazing services. Thank you. Good health insurance doesn't have to be expensive. At Ambetter from Superior Health Plan, our plans are better for your budget. 
We provide complete care at a much lower cost. And you may qualify for financial assistance to help pay for your coverage. Sign up for the most affordable care today. Call 1-844-TX-BETTER. That's 1-844-TX-B-E-T-T-E-R. Ambetter from Superior Health Plan is insured by Celtic Insurance Company. This is a solicitation for insurance. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.